Welcome to the Uphill Athlete Podcast, where our mission is to elevate and inspire all mountain athletes through education and celebration. My name is Steve House, and I will be your host today, along with Alyssa Clark. We're continuing our mountaineering series today with a familiar voice, our Director of Coaching, Chantelle Robitaille. Welcome, Chantelle. Thanks, Steve. Hi, hi, Alyssa. Hey, how's it going? Great. In this episode, we focus on the base period of training and mountaineering training. Chantelle, can you start us off with what base training is and why it's important? Absolutely. I think the first thing to start off with is probably people may know base training by different names. Um I think collegiate athletes are probably amongst all athletes, those who are most familiar with the term base training. And that's where they were, would typically be building plenty of miles or time on their feet at low, slow effort levels to prepare for their race season. And then they would start layering on other work like strength work, intervals, and other high intensity work. Um, probably a more common name that it's been known, known by in popular blogs, social media, et cetera, etc. over the last couple of years is zone two. Uh, we can't look around very far without seeing zone two being mentioned. Uh, so that's another way to describe this period. And really this base training period is where we are working to improve our work capacity and improve our resistance to fatigue. So really what we're looking to do is build our endurance uh, through this type of lower effort slower effort training, which isn't always, doesn't always feel the sexiest, but it's probably the most important of all the training that we do because it really sets a good base for everything else that we need to do to prepare for mountaineering objectives. That's a great answer. And just to add on to that, I always call this section the unsexy work section, but it's really, (laughs) it's really where you get the um like you get the the meat and potatoes uh if you eat meat uh of your training program and really where you need that consistency is in this period even though it feels like oh it's so far out it doesn't really matter it it really is such an important part of our training it really sets us up with a great foundation it's like the the base of the pyramid um so steve with that what are the three main principles to follow in base training well, I think it's important to first to kind of piggyback on what you were saying, Alyssa, is to really emphasize that, you know, in in the base period, we're forging our metabolism. And in the later on, in the fun, as we call it, the more specific periods, we'll be sharpening that. And the base period is so important precisely because we are like, actually, this is when you're actually baking the cake. This is when you're actually forging the the tool. The period before this with transition, I want to just go back to that for a second. That's the period where you're basically just making sure you're fit enough and healthy enough to train. And everybody needs to go back through that uh, and make sure, address, you know, various problems. We talked about that already. Get things going, get things set up, understand your where you are strength-wise, endurance-wise. And then by the time you get to the base period, all that is figured out and it's time to just get to work, like you said. 
I think that the I always wanted to make a t-shirt about this, but I've never quite figured out how it's going to look. Maybe somebody in the audience will have an idea, but uh, continuity with gradualness and modulation and those three things, continuity is what you said a minute ago that is like the consistency doing the training uh, at the right about with the right time intervals. Okay. We can talk about that. That's sort of the idea, concept of training density gradualness is that you gradually increase the training load over time our bodies adapt to the stress we put upon them so if we are you know training for mountaineering and we're hiking uh with a you know five hours a week if we just hike five hours every week we'll never be able to hike 15 hours a week because we we will never have adapted to six seven eight nine ten eleven twelve thirteen and fourteen hours a week so that's that's the gradualness and, and that's really important modulation essentially is a fancy word for taking recovery when you need it and in the base period the traditional i would say kind of most common and, and Chantel can speak more to this probably than I can, but the most common sort of layout is sort of three weeks on and then one week, let's say, off, where you do roughly half of your volume, kind of the rule of thumb it, for that recovery week is is half of the previous week's training volume. So that that's the modulation. And the modulation happens over these like little cycles of, say, four weeks, sometimes that could be five weeks or six weeks, but it also um, happens over the the longer uh, period. Modulation can also apply to the to the whole picture of of a year's training as well. But in this case, I think we'll restrict it to talking about the base period since that's the subject for today. Excellent. And Chantel already touched on this by calling this period the Zone Two period, which has mixed reviews. Uh, personally, I've always loved this. I, I love trading zone one, zone two. It's just kind of my bread and butter, but it's definitely not the easiest thing for athletes who have lived much more in the high intensity area of exercise. It can feel very difficult to, to slow down and feel like you're making progress. Um, but how do we think about the distribution of this zone one, zone two aerobic training volume in our base period? Are we putting in any anaerobic work or how is that um, brought into this training or is it not brought into this training? So I'd love to hear either Steve or Chantel how we distribute this work. Ooh, that's a big question. Um, and it kind of has that, that annoying coach answer. It depends, right? It depends who the Best person answer. is, right? It depends what has, what has someone's training looked like? You know, if someone has been doing, uh, plenty of aerobic work over the last few, uh, months, years, then they can, they can, their body is ready to handle perhaps a, a more, varied distribution of intensity. However, if it's someone who is new to training in general or new to having a structured training plan, and uh, I think particularly people who live in mountain towns are guilty of this, they go by what's what's going on, right? Oh, I've got an opportunity to do some skiing today. I've got the opportunity to go running. I've got the opportunity to go hiking. So their intensity distribution is all over the place. 
And when most people aren't really thinking about going out and doing things from a training perspective, everything they do is medium hard, right? Everything's medium hard. So they're, they're not really working on their aerobic base with those types of activities. And so that's why a lot of them maybe find this to be challenging to slow down a little bit. And, and they've, they've done plenty of work and plenty of exercise, but they don't really have a strong aerobic base. So when we think about uphill athletes, one of the first things we do is try to figure out where is someone at? And that's why we usually start with our aerobic threshold test and we see what someone's aerobic threshold is so that we can determine what is their zone two, what is their zone one, what does their aerobic work look like? And then if we feel they're capable, we will also um, want to do a test to see what their anaerobic threshold is. And the most important thing is really looking at the difference between those two. What does that gap look like? And if the, the gap between their anaerobic threshold and their aerobic threshold is greater than 10%, then we know that that person definitely needs to be spending more time in zone one and zone two, because that's showing that their aerobic base is not very well developed. And, you know, the reason why it can be unsexy, quote, unsexy work, I love zone one and zone two myself as well, Alyssa, but maybe that's us as ultra runners, right? Um, Maybe the reason why it feels unsexy is because it takes quite a while to see results compared to when you're doing high intensity work. If you're doing, um, you know, intervals that are closer to your lactate threshold or even higher, you're going to see results from that training really quickly, right? In a matter of weeks compared to our zone two work where it can take a matter of months to start seeing some results. So it kind of depends on where someone is starting what their objective is, and how far away they are from their objective. Yeah, I would, I think that's great. And I would, you know, try to give some people some, let's say, rules of thumb here. Uh, And I'll just go off of our um, most popular training plan, the 24-week mountaineering training plan. And the first high-intensity workout in that is in week 13. So you've done a full eight-week transition period, four weeks of base period before you get any zone th- zone three higher intensity. And so, and even then, that week has about 11 hours of training and you're only, you're in zone three for less than one hour. I don't remember exactly, but I, I would have to look, but it's like 45 minutes or one hour in that first zone three uh, interval workout. And then there's really only one of those per week because pretty soon you have to start layer you know changing your strength training which we'll get to in a moment and you're going to be uh working on muscular endurance um training and that is training that is very difficult uh or not difficult but takes time to recover from and for your body to absorb that that straining training at stress and uh, the resulting adaptation so that's a really long way of saying um yeah, you don't need that much zone three for mountaineering training and you don't need to do it until pretty late. Like halfway through a six month training plan is when you might do your first workout and then you'll do them regularly for that second half of a six month training plan or or work with a, a coach or something towards an objective. But it takes a while usually to get there. That makes a lot of sense. I guess, Steve, to maybe put you on the spot a little bit and 
obviously your climbing is was at a much higher level than us mortals, but where did anaerobic training fit, if it did fit, into your base period when you were training um, for these big objectives? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, I would say that I, I mostly did uh, this kind of training, um, like a zone three interval kind of training in my specific period, not even in my base period. Um, because especially when I was more focused in the latter part of my climbing career on really high altitude objectives, it's, you, you just can't go anaerobic. <laughs> I mean, you're at, you're at above 18,000 feet. You have half of uh, at 18,000 feet and you have half of an atmosphere of pressure. So you have essentially 50% of the oxygen available that you have at sea level in that sense. So, you know, and if you're climbing to a 26, 27,000 foot peak, it's, you know, 25% of the sea level atmospheric pressure. So it is all about aerobic at, at that, at those high altitudes. Um, if you're climbing in the Cascades or the Canadian Rockies or the Alps, you know, it, it's, it's different, like uh, 13,000 feet. Yeah, it's, it's high. You have a lower atmospheric pressure. You have less oxygen available, but there may be times where you need to spend you know, kind of quote unquote sprint across underneath some seracs, or you might need to move quickly and it might be useful. The other thing that I think is useful actually about zone three and or interval training in general is I like to think of it as strength training for the heart. It's really good for the heart muscle. Um, and so there's, there's something to be said for that. I don't know, maybe Chantel knows more about like actually what the science says on that, but that was one area where I felt like, you know, that was a, a benefit because you are asking the heart to pump large volumes of water of blood very, very quickly and make hard contractions in these harder, uh, intervals that you're just not doing it when you're in zone one or zone two. Yeah, I mean, I, I set you up a bit for that question, but you answered <laughs> it to proving exactly, I think, the point that we're trying to make is that even someone at the the sharp end of alpinism, of mountaineering, et cetera, isn't doing uh, anaerobic work until after the base period, which really emphasizes you're going to be okay <laughs> until the the specialization period. Um, yeah. So thank you, Steve. That that's helpful. Uh, so switching directions, as I think that we preach zone two quite a lot. Um, how do we look at strength training in the base period? How does it differ from other points in a program? And what are the goals that an athlete should be trying to reach within this this strength base period? Um, and Chantal, I'd love for you to start us off on this. Sure. So if we think about the base period, you know, from an aerobic perspective, what we're trying to do is set down a, a, a good foundation. We're kind of doing the same thing with strength here. And our focus um, on strength training at this point in an athlete's uh, training program, it takes more of a supporting role. So think about strength training that is has a focus on keeping you moving well, rather than focus on, you know, building big muscles or building maximum strength like um, a bodybuilder might be be training, right? We're looking at, um, if we think about what is important for a mountaineer, um, you know, we're looking at, at, of course, aerobic capacity is important. Their strength is important, right? They've got to be able to carry heavy packs and, 
and uh, keep moving for uh, many hours of the day. And they've got to be able to move efficiently. And if someone is not able to move efficiently, they're going to be wasting a lot of energy. They're going to be potentially putting them at risk themselves at risk for injury if they're not moving well. So our, that's why the focus here is kind of a in a supporting role. And I know if I think about uh, some of the athletes we have in our current uh, mountaineering group programs, and they're saying like, okay, well, I'm doing this, uh, following this Chamonix Mountain Fit um, program, and I really like it. And it's teaching me a lot about how I move and where my weaknesses are. But when can I get back to doing CrossFit? And I have to keep bringing them back to the point of it's showing you where your weaknesses are. And so we want to really look at what are, it's really easy for all of us, right, to, to train our strengths. But we really have to look at where those weaknesses are, because those are the things that are going to cause us trouble down the line if we don't pay attention to that. So maybe your weakness could be potentially your aerobic capacity, right? Which we focus on in this phase. It could be the way you move. So making sure that you can identify whether you have any muscle weaknesses, if you can potentially identify any um, movement impingements within your body. So maybe you find that your left hip moves well, but your right hip doesn't. Maybe you have find that you have limited ankle flexibility. Um, maybe you find that when you are carrying your backpack on your weekend hikes, you're constantly getting a sore neck or a sore lower back. Those are important things to notice during this phase. And so what we're looking at is trying to focus on um, not only just, you know, how much weight you can move, but actually how you're moving your body and making sure that you're moving well. Uh, because if you have, let's say, a, a difference in your hips, let's say from left to right, um, it's kind of like if you have on your car a tire that is underinflated. Maybe it's fine to drive on that underinflated tire for a day to get you to the get you to the shop to, you know, put some more air in that tire or replace that tire. But if you continually drive on that underinflated tire, it's going to cause wear patterns on other tires and other parts of the car. And the same thing happens with the human body. So that's why we're not looking to go super hard in the gym. Again, we're looking at improving our aerobic capacity. If we're doing higher intensity um, strength work, we are taking away the focus from the zone two work that we're doing. And so a lot of our programs, we're not bringing in any sort of strength work even that brings us into zone three until much later in the program. So those first eight weeks are really focused on the the basic, to use your words, Alyssa, meat and potatoes kind of stuff. Steve, do you have any uh, follow-up on that? Yeah, no, I think that that's everything that Chantel said is, is true. And I want to just go back to, you know, fundamental principles. What are we trying to achieve with strength training when we're training towards a mountaineering objective? To me, it's two things. One, of course, we want to make sure that we don't get injured and strength being strong is one of the best ways to make sure you're not going to become injured doing climbing mountain. And the other one is to unlock your kind of full potential uh, for for mountaineering and to to be 
uh, able to climb. And, and this strength training has just sort of near universal benefits to for us across all of these all of these questions that we have. And in the base period of mountaineering strength training plan, you'll typically do two types of strength training. You'll do um, um, muscular endur- uh, muscular endurance type of workout, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But before that, we typically do a max strength protocol, um, for specifically for the lower body, for um, you know, because mountaineering is obviously mostly legs and glutes, and so the it's important to understand that with for example with whatever transition period strength you did and whether you're using Chamonix Mountain Fit or just a general strength routine of of your choosing that max strength is really important because what it's doing is teaching it's taking the the muscle fibers that you've conditioned through the through the base through the transition period strength and it's teaching your body neurologically to fire them more cons- more together if that makes sense and so the whole thing with max strength and lifting heavy it's actually not the way we do it and the way we approach it and the protocols that we give it's absolutely not to um to get get bigger or whatever and you do get stronger <laughs> yeah you're not trying to get yoked and you do get stronger <laughs> but the reason you're getting stronger is because the of, of the neurological adaptations that your body is making through the max strength period. And and that's the beauty of it. We're not adding any weight or maybe we are, but it's minimal, you know, like I've had athletes like gain a pound or two, but you know, I mean, that was probably, you know, we, we're going to not talk about uh, hypertrophy and, and when it's important to add muscle mass. We'll talk about that a a different day, but just leaving that aside for a moment. Um, most, mostly we're just going to be focused on doing the lifting heavy for, for lack, for the most simple words I can put to it and, and doing that so that are the muscles that wire together, fire together is the, is the little phrase, right? You're teaching your legs to, you know, the muscles in your legs to those fibers to fall fire together and and do do the work and i think that that's really important for mountaineering because one of and and this also goes for runners if a runner is listening to this because speed is a form of strength right you're the the power that you can exert is basically a function of the rate at which you can apply your strength and as uh, Lisa, or I think Chantel, you said earlier, all we're doing with all of this is trying to become more resistant to fatigue and at the same time, hopefully get faster. So that 10 hour summit day is an eight hour summit day. That's a massive difference in your safety and in your experience. And, you know, that means you're on the summit and back before the conditions get too soft, before the snow bridge on the, uh, over the uh, crevasse. Uh, softens and becomes a, a risk. All of these things. It's not just for uh, fun. There's real important uh, advantages to to this kind of training. Yeah, that's something that I talk a lot about with phone consults with my own clients. Is in the mountains, it it, it does become a safety difference if you are able to be fit and 
to continue to have the strength to move when you're fatigued. Absolutely. Um, so I, I guess too, to, to point out the, the strength component where the fear of getting big as you're doing the max strength, I mean, directly written in the book is a way to structure the, um, reps and the rest sequence so that you don't end up training like a bodybuilder. Um, so, I mean, you really explicitly write it out. Um, and so kind of taking that fear off the table. Also, you're probably not crushing hundreds of grams of protein a day. I mean, you should have a high protein, but there's a really specific way that bodybuilders build this strength and we're not doing that. <laughs> yeah, this is not hypertrophy training where I was just, I just did this, went through this with an athlete I'm coaching and, uh, in eight weeks, she put on one pound, but that was from 104 to 105. <laughs> so it's oh, like, wow. yeah, yeah. It's relative. So she, yeah. So it's relative, right? Like she's, she's pretty small and, um, and, and she's incredibly strong. Like she's like deadlifting three X her body weight, but, um, you know, that's, she's only putting on like a pound of muscle. Is that worth it for the cost? You know, the, the, the value, what we're going to get out of that in terms of her, uh, boost in speed that's probably a good trade-off in that case but yeah i think with runners you get that's where that is definitely a big fear where they're concerned about you know doing strength training and gaining weight and then they're that it's going to slow them down and i think just if you think about Alyssa, to your point about for mountaineers the the safety aspect if you're able to move faster and spend less time being exposed to the elements and or less time on your summit. Um, and you can be, have better awareness and all of those things, you know, safety is a big aspect. And I would say the same for, for any, you know, any of our listeners who are ultra runners who are afraid of strength training, it's the same thing. It's actually not going to slow you down. It will, it will benefit you in so many other ways, you know, injury prevention being one, moving better being another. and spending less time out on the trail. If you can finish in a race in, if you can finish Leadville, let's say in 25 hours versus 30 hours, that's a big difference, not only in how you're going to feel um, by the end of it, you know, dragging your carcass to the finish line. Um, you know, in the case of if, if Leadville, it also could mean a, a different buckle, right? So it's a big deal to a lot of people. So it, it really does make a difference to be fitting the strength training in for, for all different types of athletes, just the way that strength training looks and how it's, um, programmed or structured will look a little bit different. Excellent. And we will get more into strength training actually in an episode coming up with a, another amazing guest. So teaser <laughs> alert. Um, so Steve, especially, I think, I mean, we have a lot of athletes who might not have direct access to a gym, to this type of equipment. I'm assuming that in your travels, you may have ended up in places where you didn't have, you know, a squat rack or a bar. So can you do this type of training without a gym? And what might that look like? And I guess specifically to you, how have you done this when you didn't have a gym accessible? Yeah. Um, I, I tried to really discourage people from doing max strength workouts without a gym because a lot of times 
you know, if, for example, if you're doing back squats, you know, your, your, your progression is another two and a half pounds, you know, or five pounds. Like you want to have that level of precision if possible, because every week you want to be lifting it just a little bit heavier. When that's not possible, I think that the best, uh, tool that I've kind of used in these situations is two things. One, a backpack, you know, and a a travel scale. So I take like, you know, one of those little scales for weighing your luggage and a largest backpack and you can go out and you can fill it with whatever you have around that's heavy, whether that's rocks or water bottles or whatever. And then you can kind of dial it in and then you can, you can, you know, do some kind of back squat or something with that. I've also used um, the same kind of like a backpack, but used it in uh, like a goblet squat. So like holding holding it kind of under my chin in front of my chest and doing uh, squats like that. I actually really like the goblet squat a lot. Um, it's hard to do super heavy uh, weights with that, but I think that the way the weight is held is it's for a lot of people, it's just very, it feels very safe because it's really easy to dump it in front of you. And it's a really good um, tool for developing that correct posture for, for doing uh, back squats and other forms of, of, of the, you know, lunges and all kinds of, uh, you know, um, these bipedal strength movements. Um, and yeah, so same thing using a backpack or something and then just kind of filling it with some weight and then holding it up in front of me. It can be really awkward and weird, but you know, if you're traveling or you're off somewhere and that's what you need to do, then, you know, you've already, you've already decided that you're going to do something uncomfortable and weird. So what's that? What's a one more thing? So I think the point off of that is it's not ideal, but it's possible. Like you, if you want to do this, as you said, a comfortable, weird thing, you can make it happen. Um, You don't have to have the perfect setup to be doing good work. So off of that, um, we've established, okay, this max strength. We've gained our max strength gains. How do we then take this and move into a different phase of what we call muscular endurance. I think people get really jazzed about muscular endurance because that feels like a piece of the puzzle that a lot of people don't utilize. Um, So Chantel, could you help us understand how we take these max strength gains and we then translate them into our muscular endurance? Yeah, so if we think about muscular endurance, first of all, what, what the heck is it? And it's, you know, the ability for someone to do a repetitive movement with a relatively high percentage of their max strength. So that's why the max strength phase is so important because the muscular endurance phase kind of piggybacks onto that. Um, So the stronger, you know, the, the better strength you are able to develop in the earlier phase, then during the muscular endurance phase, you're focused on being able to do more, more work at a higher percentage of your maximum uh, amount of strength. So this is also, if you think about, you know, how we are training um, our, in our aerobic, um, aerobic capacity, we are trying to do more work with less fatigue, right? 
And so this is the same thing that we're doing here basically is trying to improve our muscles endurance um, compared to trying to improve our aerobic our aerobic endurance. Um, so if you think about, you know, what are you going to need to do when you are out on, on a climb or out on, you know, pursuing some objective or, or something like that, you're going to think about, you're going to be out moving around for a long time, probably carrying, you know, a good amount of weight. So that's why we want to practice some things that are going to be pretty similar to the demands of those activities. So that's why you'll see in our, in our plans, we will have um, weighted hikes where we recommend a certain percentage of body weight, you know, on your back. Like Steve said, you know, sometimes you get creative where you're putting rocks in the pack or water bottles. And for those of you who have done it, um, it's sometimes pretty fun if you're doing it in an area where there are other people and they see you get to the top of the hill and empty your pack and start dumping out water bottles or pulling rocks out of your pack. Um, but these are things that are, you know, a little bit, we're getting closer to your objective. So we're getting, you know, into some specificity here to think about now you've built this amount of strength. How are we going to use it and how are we going to make it practical? And that's where I think, you know, as you said, Alyssa, a lot of athletes get pretty jazzed about this because it starts to, it starts to kind of come together and make sense. Um, and then they get to see how that, um, that strength work has really now paid off. And I think that part of that is it also starts to look like what they perceive they're going to be doing on the mountain. So you see all these amazing pictures of Steve running in, in, you know, these amazing mountains carrying these backpacks and it's looking really heavy and hard. And that's all, you know, that's a really exciting thing to see. And so I think that's what they visualize and they see muscular endurance and they get really jazzed about it because they're like, okay, I'm out of the gym where I was doing the back squats and all the things that most of us don't necessarily love being in the gym that are mountain athletes. And so now we have, you know, that image of being up on the mountain, working hard. And, and I think that's really exciting for people. So I, I can see why, why the appeal. Um, but what does muscular endurance look like? Specifically, we're going to do the lower body and then the upper body. Um, and how do you regulate intensity, steepness, the length of the climb um, in the vertical gain within this? Before I get into like kind of the practical application, I just want to emphasize something that Chantel said that was really smart and clear. And that is that this concept that, you know, muscular endurance, you can even look at the word, right? It's it's co two components. There's the strength of the muscle and the endurance of the muscle. And in muscular endurance training, we're sort of combining the two. And the stronger the muscle is, the less strength it needs to complete a certain task relative to its absolute strength. And the more endurance trained the muscle is, the more contractions it can sustain or, or, or complete before it gets fatigued. And muscular endurance is sort of combining those two. And I think one of the things that is also explains why this is so much fun is it is the most trainable quality that that we have and you do see incredible gains really quickly especially if you've been diligent and done all of the done your whole transition and base period correctly and you're going to it's sort of like you know 
I think of, you know, the forging example again, you know, you've, you've forged the, the tool and the, the, the better job you did on that forging process, the better the end product will be. Right. And so that's, we're on, we're, on, we're at the end phase now we're, we're, we're doing the polishing and the sharpening and so on, but this is exactly why it's uh, so fun is because it's like the, it's, you're really getting the shape of what you're doing because you are doing exactly what looks like training. And the way you progress it is really pretty simple. You can progress it um, in, in multiple ways. Typically, with most athletes that haven't done a lot of this, uh, I'll start them with 10% of body weight, which is usually too light. Um, don't take that as a, as a, uh, as a prescription to just go out and start with 20% of body weight. If you've never done this, because you need to get a little used to it. And one week is not, should not be a, a, a big deal. Um, but start with something like that, like 10, 15% of your body weight and, and go out and do like for an hour or so. Um, and then start to ramp up a little bit every, every week. And, you know, you don't want to, you can't really do this workout more than once every say seven days if you're recovering well. And as the workouts get harder, I might even space them out to 10 days. And I don't, you don't want to go, with a heavier weight than, you know, you, you, you can go, it makes sense and it's logical. And I coach athletes to a little heavier than what they're going to carry on the mountain. So if they're going to Denali and they might have a, I don't know, 65 pound backpack, I might let them go up to 70 pounds, but there's no need to go to a hundred. Okay. It doesn't, you don't just need to kind of keep going and going and going because we, and then you're, you know, you're training something that you don't, you're creating. Yeah. That's not necessary. So what, um, that's the one way to progress it. The other way you can progress it is in, with duration. So you start to make the intervals longer. When I have done these, I've mostly done them in places outside where I either had, uh, uh, carrying rocks or carrying water. And I would do basically be doing laps up some sort of, uh, usually I didn't do them on a trail because most trails aren't steep enough. Usually I just wore mountain boots that were old mountain boots and, um, went up through the, through the woods or through up the slope, um, to, to get the steepest fall line I could. And, I also want to another a really excellent place to do these if you live in a ski town, especially in the in the summer, but even in the winter, is on a ski slope. Uh, a steep ski run is a great place uh, to do these workouts. But all that said, the duration can can be ramped up as well, and so um, there's a lot of thought and, and, and debate that can go into exactly what those durations are, but they're probably starting at somewhere around an hour. And if I remember right, you know, some of my longest workouts in this way were like four hours where I was doing like six laps or so. Um, and those were exhausting, really hard workouts. And then how do you, what's the ideal length of vertical and weight you should be hitting by the end of this period? With the muscular endurance, yes, you know it. It really depends on your on your goal, and you know, 
That's a hard. That's as as Chantel said. It depends. Uh, the annoying coach answer. It really depends. So, for ex- you know, example, if you're going to co climb Mount Rainier, you know that that summit day is four thousand vertical feet. You know, what do you need to be able to do in training to climb summit day on Rainier? Well, do you need to be able to do eight thousand feet with? 40% of body weight? No, that's way too much, honestly. You know, um, the, the, you, the training does not need to be harder, harder than the event. So, you know, f- for somebody climbing Rainier, I'm probably going to have them do something like a 2,000 vertical feet with like two, 20% of body weight. And that's, that's going to be great. But what I may be doing is backing up two of those workouts on successive days right before they go. So they're doing like on a Saturday, they're doing maybe two hours and, uh, you know, two hours total. So there's some warm up and cool down in there. So that's maybe 90 minutes of actual ME workout. And then maybe on the next day, they're doing a three hour, three hours. So two and a half hours of ME. And that's going to be plenty. That's going to be plenty. Definitely. I mean, one of the principles from ultra running is you don't go run a hundred miles to train for a hundred miler. <laughs> that's, exactly. that's not going to work. Yeah. So not all of us are lucky enough to live with a ski mountain accessible. Uh, Chantal, can you give us some examples of what people can do if they don't live in the mountains? Because I know we have a lot of clients who are not quite as vertically gifted as others. Yeah, that's that's a common question we get, isn't it? Um, and that's where you have to just get a little bit creative. So, you know, a couple of the ways would be doing box step ups. So, you know, there's, you know, maybe there's a box in your gym, or if you don't have access to a specific, you know, gym box, you don't need that necessarily. Uh, you could have a, you know, a bench at home or something like that, that you could, or something that you could, you know, create that wouldn't be too hard. Um the good old uh, stair stepper mill is a good one, or stair climber. Uh, you could crank up the incline on your treadmill. A lot of the treadmills uh, nowadays have pretty good um, incline that you can get up to. So use that. Take advantage of that if you have access to that either at home or at a gym. Um, for those that maybe don't have access to um, a gym even, you know, if someone lives somewhere that is kind of inconvenient to get to a gym, they have to get creative. So I've seen people do uh, climbing stairwells in taller buildings, uh, stairwells in parking garages. Um, I had once an athlete who lived in Florida and his, he would get his vertical by uh, climbing the stairs on those, you know, overpasses that go over a road. That's what that's where he was getting his vertical. So you might have to get a little bit creative, and obviously it's not going to be uh, maybe as fun as it might be in the mountains. But uh, I like to think about it. As, you know, you get you get a lo- lot of bang for your buck here because you can think about it as being some really good mental training as well. Absolutely. <laughs> I like to say that to clients too, where it's like, think how much more fun it's going to be when you're out on Rainier and experiencing all of that. And you know that you can go up and down on a box for two hours at a time. You're going to be great. So if you can go up and down on a box for two hours at a time, there's a lot of stuff you can do in the real world. (laughs) Yeah, that's way harder. (laughs) And hats off to those that can do it. (laughs) Definitely. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. when it's, 
blowing snow and not warm and the conditions are going crazy. You're like, ah, I could be on a box right now. So, you know, things could be yeah, worse. That's right. I, totally I once coached an athlete who was an engineer on a cargo ship. So he did his oh, ME wow. workouts in uh, the stairs inside the ship, which was huge, right? So I can't remember how many f- sort of floors it was, but I, I want to say it was like eight floors or something. But the GPS data was crazy because, of course, the ship is moving. <laughs> and the oh, ship right, is not yeah. just moving forward. It's also moving up and down, and he's moving up and down. So it was a complete disaster for, for trying to figure out the data. I just had to sort of throw the data away. <laughs> Yeah, that would be tough. But I bet he did really well on the actual climb because he was, yeah. yeah. He was motivated. He went and climbed. I mean, that was what he liked about that job is that, you know, he would, he would do, he was in the ship engineer for like one crossing. And then, so that would take whatever, a, a chunk of time. And then he had a big chunk of time off. So that's it worked out. So he had time to go climbing. And he actually, because he was always going to Asia, he was going climbing in the Himalaya a lot and worked out really well for him. Oh, nice. Mm-hmm. That's super cool. Mm-hmm. So we've talked a lot about the lower body, but mountaineering, you do have to carry a heavy pack. You know, you do have to have upper body um, strength and endurance. So how do we go about training muscular endurance for the upper body? Steve, if you want to take this on. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, there is a free, and I it's one of my favorite personal favorite workouts There's a free gym based muscular endurance workout on the website. We can link to in the show notes and uh, you can do muscular endurance training that way. And it's more of like a circuit style ME and it it includes, you know, things like box step ups, but it also includes upper body work. And there's a lot of different ways uh, to do that. Um, We also will have developed things like for people going to Denali and Everest, we've developed like a, a essentially a Jumar workout on a rope so that you, you know, because people were coming back to us after, you know, and saying like, yeah, my legs were great, but I had to like move the Jumar up on the rope. My arm was exhausted. And I was like, oh, okay, well, we gotta, we gotta come up with a, a way to train that. And so all of these things kind of can, can be done with some sort of creativity, I guess, for lack of a better word. But some of the classic ways, of course, are just to go do long climbs outside, um, to do, uh, to go to the climbing gym, to, you know, use a rotating climbing wall, like a tread wall, uh, for the, we, I developed this, um, this exercise, uh, where I would, um, kind of set a treadmill on a really slow speed and then walk on my hands, like basically to make a plank position on the, on the floor with my hands on the treadmill and just set it for, it's really hard. Um, so you have to set that the treadmill for extremely hard, really slow, but it's a great <laughs> ME, uh, workout and you can, every hotel gym has a treadmill, right? Um, yeah. so that's, it's, it's a good little, little tool. Um, don't expect that you can do it for many minutes at a time though. Cause you're using ton. It's yeah, it's a very interesting exercise actually. Um, but yeah, I think that there's a lot of things. I think, you know, the first time I actually saw this going on was years ago. I want to say, I don't even know what year it was. I was, I wasn't even, I wasn't even 20 probably. Um, so <laughs> this was over 30 years ago. And I remember 
being at Smith Rock climbing and seeing this, you know, the t- kind of top American climber at the time and the first American to establish a 514 uh, was this guy named Scott Franklin. And Scott was on this 513A with a weight vest. He's on uh, churning in the wake, it's called. And I remember like just being blown away. And he would just, you know, he would just, he was just, throwing laps on this thing, you know, a 513 and wearing a, a weight vest. And I was like, okay, I didn't know what that was, but that's what that was. It was muscular endurance training. I mean, it was, he probably didn't know what it was, <laughs> but he kind of from wherever put some ideas together and did that and later became the first American to climb a 514 and uh, just around the corner from where he was training. So, I mean, I think that, you know, we should never discount uh, creativity and kind of understanding these basic concepts and then applying it in new and creative ways to help us accomplish what we want to do. I now want to try, I'll be in a hotel this weekend and I really want to try treadmill hand walking. I know. I was thinking the same yeah. thing. After this meeting, I'm going to turn on my treadmill, make it really slow, ask for a spotter and give it a try. I mean, nothing, nothing really happens. You just kind of fall on your face. Yeah. I think I might wear gloves too, because treadmills are not clean. I know. Oh, they're not. That's actually very true. They're not clean at all. Yeah. 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 That's a good point. Yeah. yeah. And some, some of them are really Dirty. Especially the gym. Ones, at like, home is probably nice and clean. <laughs> yeah, mine's out. mine's probably not too bad, but yeah, you know, I guess if it's in a gym or in a hotel, you know, getting lots of use, you don't. Yeah, I wouldn't want to see a blue light on one of those with all the different people sweating all over them. Yeah, yeah, I I don't think I would either. So the last point that I want to touch on, and, and we won't go too deeply into it because we're gonna kind of separate mountaineering from alpinism, because we'll talk about alpinism later on. But if you were looking at a mountaineering objective versus an alpine objective, how would you differentiate the base period for the two of them? What would be some of the differences that you would see? Uh, I think the main thing to think about is the the differences between the two. And with, you know, for mountaineering, the main concern is overcoming the conditions at the high altitudes, right? That's the one big thing. Obviously, getting up the mountain is is a big one, but you're really thinking about those conditions. And when we're thinking about alpinism, we're thinking about overcoming, we've got obvious, you know, most of the time we're thinking about those same conditions as with mountaineering, but we're also have the additional um, technical challenges that are involved with those types of objectives. So then we're thinking about, you know, uh, rock climbing and ice climbing, potentially both, um, you know, mixed climbing as well in, in some of those objectives as well. So when we think about a training plan for those two, there will be a lot of similarities, but it will be those specific aspects to the training that will be different to make sure that, um, that the athlete is prepared for the specific challenges of that objective. And you could have the same mountain that might be considered a mountaineering objective in one season, but an, you know, an alpinism objective in another season based on the technicalities and changes uh, at different times of the year. Definitely in different route selection. I mean, Mm -hmm. right here, there's a tremendous amount of variation of technicality that you can get depending on what route you choose. 
So yeah, so you want to take those into consideration. And then also, again, looking at the individual themselves, right? How much experience do they have with, with doing that type of um, objective in the past? What's their comfort level? What's their experience level? What are their, and again, coming back to what we talked about in the beginning, you know, when we're looking at um, assessing an athlete, what are their strengths and challenges and making sure that we, of course, we want to continue building those strengths, but we really want to hone in on what those challenges are because, you know, and those high mountain objectives, you know, the, the um, consequences are high. And we want to make sure that someone is as prepared as possible in all realms from, you know, from the, the technical aspect to their aerobic capacity aspect to their strength and uh, even muscular endurance aspect. All those things matter, but they're going to be a little bit different. Yeah. And I would just add that, you know, to there's to me four there's more, but there's four main <laughs> things that we can talk about and that is going to lead to, you know, being a strong and successful mountaineer. And one is aerobic efficiency. One is your speed and speed is related to strength. As we discussed, another is your muscular endurance capacity. And then the other one is your technique. And even just for um, the easiest route on Mont Blanc or Mount, Mount Rainier, um, there is a massive difference between someone who's super efficient in their technique and somebody who is not and so it's it's that that factor alone if you if you never train that that can you can be the strongest and i've seen that in my guiding career i saw this so many times you'd see people who are super strong and you would see people who are super weak and depending on where their technique was on that continuum they would either do well or not and that that can override everything so it's let's not forget that we can't train that in the gym, but we can gain experience. And so that's important to to factor in. I think that's such a great point. I mean, we were out ski touring this past weekend and just watching the difference of people going uphill, those with uh, kick turn technique that wasn't dialed in were working so much harder. So they, you know, they might be really fit, but the expenditure of energy was so much higher because of their inefficiency of technique. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's a really important point to make and just goes to the point that you really have to work on the skills set as well. Yeah. You can hear it. Oh yeah. 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 You can hear it. Like they're coming up the skin track. They're like slapping and lifting their feet way up. And I did that too. Like I'm not putting anyone well, yeah. down. Like we all went through that. Um, but it, and I didn't learn. I just did thousands of hours of it until my body learned the most efficient movement pattern. And we have to train those movement patterns too. Like that's not, you know, and that's why coaching, you know, tips like technique coaching is so valuable because you can correct movement patterns and teach your body the, the more efficient and the better one. And I mean, running is a prime example. We could talk all day about that. I'm sure with you too, but that's, that's outside of tonight's discussion. <laughs> well, I think that just about wraps us up. Is there anything else you'd like to touch on Steve or Chantel before, before we close out? I think the biggest thing is to think about, you know, we talk about like the quote unquote unsexiness of base training. If you feel that way about it, try to find a way to turn it around uh, because it is so integral to everything that you're going to do, regardless of what type of athlete you are. Um, so 
you know, try to reframe that, try to find a way to um, put it in a different perspective or a different spin on it so that you can, rather than going out and dreading it, or just constantly turning every zone two workout into a zone three workout um, because you're not paying attention or you don't like it or you have a negative thought about it, try to reframe it in your head and find a way to enjoy it and remember that it really sets the stage for everything else you're going to do to reach your goals. Yeah. And I would just add to that, stay connected to the magic. You know, if you're a mountaineer, it's because you love being in the mountains and don't let, you know, the training should never supersede the motivation and you should always like continue to dip into the mountains and to what inspires you about the mountains to keep your, you know, to keep that part of you alive, because that's really what we're doing this for. We're not doing this to beat anyone, uh, beat anyone or run a faster time or than whatever it's about you know being in the mountains enjoying the mountains um being safe uh and of course having a, a long and and uh varied career as a mountaineer and that's what it's it's for so always just stay connected to the source i love it good well, reminder yeah I, I spend a lot of time visualizing in this period. I think that's always a great place to be where you're envisioning how this work is going to pay off and, and what you're going to feel and how great you're going to feel because you're, you've done the work. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. That's actually a great tip. Yeah. No, it's I, like uh, I do that a lot with racing. I mean, that mm-hmm. that's more of an outcome, but it's like, okay, this is the work that is going to allow me to do what I want to do out there. Yeah. So. Well, thank you both for being on this. Thank you all for listening to the Uphill Athlete Podcast. We ask that you rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. You can also visit us at uphillathlete.com. And we really appreciate you taking the time to tune in. And remember, it's not just one, but a community. Together, we are Uphill Athlete. Thanks for listening.